when you're younger, you kind of want to lay out your path. You want to do all of the right things. What I realize is that doesn't really work because you can plan as much as you want. But you know, in the day and age that we live in, we just need to be focused and just do the best we can. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Sustainable Ambassador Podcast. My name is Rich Brubaker. I'm the founder of Collective Responsibility. In this episode, I am extremely happy to be joined by Veronica Yao, manager of ESG and Impact at the Malloy Fund for Sustainable Community Fisheries. Talking to her because I've known her for more than a decade now, newer in the NGO space, been watching her transition over to the impact investment space, and going to talk a little about what that leap has been like, how this is part of her career, how she sees each one as being a, an effective tool towards change. With that, Veronica, thank you very much for joining the, the community here. It'd be great if you could properly introduce yourself and the work that you're doing. So hi, everyone. My name is Veronica. And as Richard mentioned, I work for the Malloy Fund as the manager of ESG and Impact. I get involved anywhere along the investment process, starting from building pipeline to conducting ESG due diligence to estimating the impact of our portfolio companies. So I get to design TA projects with our investees in their supply chain to make sure that environmental sustainability aspect of their business is being taken care of. But what's the background of the Malloy Fund? How did it come about? And what's the wider vision for the fund itself? So the Malloy Fund came about from Rare. Rare has been running a sustainable fishery program at the local community level, supporting local leaders to develop co-management fishery programs. And at the same time, what they were also trying to do is sell the fish that's sustainably caught to uh, down the supply chain. So initially that involves working with hotels in Manila and Singapore to get to the, the fish uh, with a higher margin. So at those markets that demand sustainable seafood back to the fishers. Okay. And the difficult thing is working with the middle part of the supply chain. And that was the initial kind of impetus to start the Malloy Fund, to invest in those mid-level supply chain to be able to bring the fish to the end users. How did you move in from, from Rare into the Malloy Fund as part of this process? So when I first joined Rare, it was India Sustainable Markets and Finance team. And at that point, um, the Sustainable Agriculture Program in China was just getting started. So I got involved with that. And my role was a lot on program management, in monitoring and evaluation, in supply chain engagement, which is very much to a certain extent what I'm doing right now. So I guess a lot of the skill sets are transferable across. And mm. when um, my manager started the Malloy Fund, maybe about three years later, when the program in China ended, the natural progression was for me to join the Impact Fund. But moving from a nonprofit to a fund seems... Like a big leap. Is this something that all nonprofit professionals should start planning on? It's like their fund experience is the next opportunity, or was this really just a unique thing for you? I wouldn't necessarily say the trend, right? But it, blended finance is more and more common these days. You're just looking at what is the problem, what is the financing that's needed for the transition, which one is mm -hmm. confessional, which one is commercial, and then kind of laying out the steps. And then who are then the investors that you can attract kind of along the investment needs. And having yeah. said that, it's not necessarily easy to be able to hat play that, you know, to wear that NGO hat versus the investment hat. And that's right. why the, the investment fund has spun off kind of as an independent organization now. What is the job that you do as a ESG and impact manager at a fund? Like what, what are the things that you're looking at? What are the things that you are influencing? What are you, what's your vision for change in this role? A lot of what I do, I like to call it humanizing the supply chain. So mm. our typical investees are your seafood processes. So they are mom and pop factory that buy fish and sells fish. 
So a lot of the times when we're talking about the environmental sustainability of a fishery, it gets pretty technical. You need marine scientists, you need to run the numbers, you need a lot of data to be able to understand is what you're catching, will it still be yeah. there in five years, 10 years, and yeah. then engaging the government to start managing the fishery. So kind of what I do then, number one, is going into the company and understanding what policies do they already have with regards to ESG. So that mm. includes for their employees, as well as then down their supply chain. How far along the supply chain can they actually um, trace what technologies are available for them to, to trace further down the supply chain? And I think really important is um, we have this TA facility to be able to provide grant funding to support our investors to trial new ways of sourcing, finding new partnerships um, that can support their, um, their fishes. So yeah, it's, it's quite dynamic, you know, every, you know, every day, you know, there's kind of different aspects of it that, that play out. So yeah, you know, it keeps the job interesting. <laughs> but if you're not a technical, mm -hmm. say, supply chain person or mm -hmm. a marine biologist or even mm -hmm. a financier, what is your mm -hmm. role in this? And then how are you, what, mm -hmm. what's your job effectively at the end of the day? I think my job is just figuring out what's the problem, right? And how to solve it and how to bring in the right people at the right time, you know, to be able to see the big picture and then zooming in into each technical um, aspect and then finding the right people to bring yeah. in to provide that that specialization. Um, that that's, that's my role. This is, so then how do you view your work, say, now compared to the work that you're mm -hmm. doing at Rare in a pure nonprofit mm -hmm. role? It's the same organization, but two different ways of hopefully achieving a similar goal. Yeah, I think fundamentally what's different is when you're working on the commercial kind of private sector side, right? Our key, our key challenge is really to integrate all the work that we're doing now into the policies of the company and making mm -hmm. sure that, you know, when we exit the investment, they will continue doing uh, what we're really doing. Versus, as we all know, with NGO funding, there is a, a finite amount of time and it is difficult yeah. to sometimes to like, you know, maintain the momentum because of the constant the need for funding. So that is a key difference, I would say. And then just coming in as an investor is a completely different ballgame <laughs> compared to coming in as an NGO and say, hey, can you help us? But like, hey, we come in with money. And what's the role of passion in your job? I mean, I, I remember a very young and passionate Veronica who was trying to save the world 10 years. Is there a place for that? Or is it, look, we're an investor now and I've I've just started to really realize like passion has a place, but not in this space right now. I mean, passion is, is, is necessary <laughs> because you got to believe in what you do because it's yeah. not easy and it's not just about deploying capital. And my team will tell you, like, you know, there are certain things that, you know, Veronica really wants to see a change and a shift. And that yeah. may require bringing in earlier stage capital, partnering with other funds that we're not, we're just not seeing in the blue economy right now. It, it, it is a, um, a balancing act. But at the end of the day, I mean, yes, I believe you do need passion um, <laughs> to, to keep it going, but but not just like passion alone, right? So, so yeah. A lot mm -hmm. of people, and I know that we've talked about this in before, is the balance between impact Mm -hmm. and return on investment. A lot of times these funds are asking for almost the exact same ROI as a standard fund with the impact on top. How, how do you see that? And how do you try and fight for the little guy who facing a lot of market constraints so that 
they can find that balance. You just yeah. got to be able to kind of understand, okay, where do I go in, in in different deals? And at the end of the day, when you have a portfolio, then you're able to balance out also the, the returns and, and the impact. The investment thesis needs to be at the very least kind of like not doing more harm. And then mm. you kind of layer on different ways of achieving that impact based on the opportunities in the market. Who are you helping and how does the funding help them? So mm. half of our portfolio are the seafood processes. So we invest normally in high value species like tuna, blue swimming crab, octopus. And another half of our portfolio are the startups, mostly in aquaculture, in shrimp, mm. seaweed, for example. So we provide either equity or debt investment into these businesses. That's when the kind of the fund starts, which is then tracing down the supply chain all the yeah. way to the fisher or the farmer level. So then how do we actually impact the fishers and the farmers? And that's looking at the, the sourcing policy of our investees. What mm. payment terms? What is the size of the fish that they're catching? How are they ensuring that fishers are safe at sea? That they have a grievance mechanism? Of how are we returning higher margins back to the fishers? So those are all of the different elements mm. that we ensure that fishers will benefit. And yeah. then at the same time, we provide additional grant funding to, for example, hire the NGOs to work at the fisher level to set up fisher associations, cooperatives, run financial literacy training for the fishers and the farmers. How do you ensure, to the best of your ability, transparency? And what are the gaps that you face or what are the challenges around that that people don't really understand? Because there's been a lot yeah. of controversy around this and everyone wants to say like, oh, that's just greenwashing or oh, they're just blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot of work here. So what's the challenges of getting that done? And how, how do you overcome that in your work? So whenever possible, we go with what's already um, well, mm. like well-known standards in the industry, right? For example, we use the IFC performance standards um, in our ESG due diligence. But what we realize is starting with known standards in the industry, it needs to be then um, catered or uh, customized, I would say, to the yeah. sector. We're dealing with a small-scale fishery sector which is mm. different from your industrial and commercial fleet. So what yeah. we then do is, you know, we take existing standards, then we customize to the realities that we see on the ground to create that feedback loop. What we also then do is when we look at the seafood sector, the gold standard as of now is the MSC certification. So where possible, we ask our investees, can you source from fishery that's already certified? Or if not, can we put you on a pathway What's the work that goes in after you found the organization, after you've done the due diligence and you've given them the money? Like, are you still super active in the business or are the groups that you're working with pretty much, they've got it all, they just need the money? We play a really active role um, with our investees because our model is also not just finding the ones that are already kind of sustainable and doing all the amazing things. We work a lot with traditional businesses that requires um, a bit of hand-holding about ESG matters, but also on the corporate governance, right? Running a family business is, you know, very different from, let's say, a multinational, and particularly in the seafood sector where, let's say, 90% of the businesses are these traditional businesses. <clears throat> so it, it, so inherently that you have to work with them if you want to see a change in the, in the market towards that certification. So talking about this in terms of like your own career, um, first off, how did you even get into sustainability? Like what was your entry point? Was it an issue that you wanted to solve? Was it an organization you want to work with? Like how did you get into the space and what were you hoping to achieve? Yeah, um, I'll start a bit kind of 
for the banquet. So my basic, you know, bachelor of trading was in, you know, I did a BCom um, in kind of in accounting and I started my career as a tax accountant, um, you know, working on retirement funds. Um, and But I always knew I wanted to work on it in, in the in-between sectors, you know, whether it's like private or nonprofit or public. And um, as soon as I got my chartered accountant, I quit my job. So and that's kind of my way of saying thank you, parents, for sending me to, to school. I've done what I could with it. And now off I go. And I went to Egypt at that you know, 10 years ago now um, during the Arab Spring to work for PwC, running public health uh, campaigns, working with uh, corporates, universities. And I think, you know, being in Egypt during the Arab Spring, you know, doing this work was, was tremendous. It was a great opportunity um, to, to work across the sectors. I then did um, a year of international development in Uganda, you know, more classic non-for-profit. And I went back to Egypt then to help PwC to set up their green entrepreneurship program. Mm. And at that time, I began to realize that it doesn't make sense where, you know, companies make their money and then donate a portion of it. You know, sustainability needs to be integrated into the business model. And how do we do that? So that's when I did my master's in sustainability management in Washington, D.C. And at that time, I found an internship with Rare. And that was how I kind of got started into the, the NGO sector. So it's, it's okay. not kind of linear. It's not that necessarily planned out. It was just sure. kind of what I saw as being the best best opportunity for me at that point. What's the role of passion and say mission for the work right now in your career? Like, is it something that you have and you're really clear about and this opportunity feeds into the next one, which feeds into the next one, which all lines up? Or are you really just as you said, you're kind of like, you didn't have a plan. You're kind of taking as it comes. When you're younger, right, you kind of want to lay out your path. You want to do all of the right things. And one thing leads to another. And you always want to have some sort of plan. So what I realized is that doesn't really work because <laughs> you can plan as much as you want. But, you know, in the day and age that we live in, that's just not going to roll. So the best thing that I would say is, you know, you need to believe in, in what you do. And mm. And the passion alone is not enough because then that leads to burnout. And then you need to be able to, you know, set clear boundaries. And, and I'm sure a lot of like, you know, people in sustainability struggle with, you know, how far can your passion take, take you? And I think really at any point in time, seeing kind of what's in front of you, right? The opportunity, is this still aligned with what you really want to do and what you believe in and giving your best? And, and that is enough. You're mm. planting the seeds, but don't expect the plant to bloom the next day, right? I think that's also the other piece of that sense yeah. of urgency that we feel in, in, in for sustainability professionals. Yeah. You know, we just got to take it in strike and, and, and do our best given what we have mm. or know is on the plate right now. You have rough experience in kind of profit and nonprofit mm -hmm. at this point. What are, in your view, the positives of each and what are the constraints mm -hmm. of each? I mean, the, the benefit is actually, you know, you come with a checkbook, right? And it's like, hey guys, what would you like, how you want to grow your business, you know, blah, 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 mm. you know, that, that just opens doors. But the, the challenge there is then when you want that impact at the community level, it's, it's, it's very challenging because a mm. lot of these local communities, they're left behind for certain reasons. There's just many systemic issues sure. that private capital alone may or may not be able to solve. And mm. on the NGO sector, and you know, as we are aware with the funding cycle, which is like two years, three years, you know, whereas the development impact really takes much, much, much longer time. And I fundamentally believe in capacity building is necessary. In terms of what's for me, I'm entertaining the possibility of starting something of my own, or, or like mm. I mentioned, kind of going back to my my family business. And if I am to set something up, it would be more along the social enterprise model. So okay. kind of a, a, a for-profit 
kind of B Corp that's, um, that, you know, we're not about maximizing shareholder value. So, uh, but, you know, in terms of stakeholders value. So I think, right. you know, that's, I think that's the sweet spot. <laughs> what advice would you give to a young professional, perhaps a student who's looking to focus their career on this space? Seize the opportunity. I think these days there are so many ways um, to be mm. involved. When I was working as a tax accountant and just like sounding down the hours, um, I just volunteered with different NGOs to find that what I'm passionate about, what I'm you know, good or may not be good at, you know, what I like and what I don't mm. like. I think making that initial foray and step is, is yeah. challenging, but the yeah. opportunities are there. So I would say just connect, find, <clears throat> you know, wherever you can start, start in whichever yeah. so that you begin to build up the experience and you begin to find um the, the type of people that you want to be working with earlier i would i would say like you know start with the corporate sector but i think these days it, it doesn't really matter i think as long as you you find kind of like um impact oriented roles wherever right. that is you know not just doing what you think you should but really mm -hmm. what you would love to do like when you wake up every day and and this really drives you so that's yeah. another key part of it and you wouldn't know unless you try enough things <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's what i kind of recommend like you know if you're young in your career just kind of try out different things um mm -hmm. and then hone in on like you know what is then your your you know whatever value proposition what do you have to offer you know um yeah. and 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 yeah and it, it will come and then just to trust to trust the yeah. process yes does having a sustainability degree help is it required do you think it's better to have a technical degree? Like what, what's your thoughts on the whole sustainable education space? Yeah, I think when I did it five years ago, I think it's still fairly new. So the degree, um, the master's program that I did was quite um, general. It kind of gives you, an, you know, a snapshot into all of the different fields. And personally, mm -hmm. I would have preferred something um, more technical. But what I've seen now as I started working is, you really need people who can connect the dots and then that means a more kind of general generalist view rather than a technical specialist um, which you can always hire thank you very much for your time mm -hmm.